Hello, and welcome to The Interview, a new podcast by Mediaite. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and each week I'm interviewing a top figure in media and politics. This week I'm joined by Brian Stelter. He's CNN's chief media correspondent and anchor of Sunday show Reliable Sources. Brian's new book, Hoax, examines the symbiotic relationship between Fox News and the Trump White House. The book is deeply sourced. Brian says he spoke to more than 300 current and former Fox News staffers. I called him up to discuss his extensive reporting on Fox News in the Trump era, CNN's own coverage of Trump, and what happens to the industry if the president doesn't win re-election this November. Hi, Brian. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. This is going to be a very meta conversation. Yeah, this is probably one of the most sort of media-focused interviews media on, that you've media done. Media on media. Yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm probably to... the number one reader of Mediaite. Really? I, that, that's, I, I appreciate that. Um, it's very flattering. I would challenge uh, anyone else to uh, tell me they visit more often than I do. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that adds a little bit more pressure to me, but uh, I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> now, I, I want to talk about your book, Hoax Donald Trump Fox News and the Dangerous Distortion of Truth. Uh, you've been on a book tour since it came out last week. I've seen you on a, a few of the networks, uh, with one notable exception, I should say. Oh, well, which you one? Haven't been on, you haven't been on Fox News. Uh, is there That's a reason true. for that? <laughs> you know the reason, I know the reason, and I never expected uh, to be booked on Fox News to talk about this story. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. However, I did offer to have Sean Hannity on my program and then go on his program. You know, you, you do see this once in a while in the news business, in the media business, where hosts will go on each other's shows. And I figured it might be possible because, you know, Hannity is out with a book this month also, and it's from the same publishing company, Simon & Schuster. So I, I did put in that offer. I meant it genuinely, uh, but uh, so far it has not come through. Sure. Now, let's talk a little bit about the book and maybe we can get into why that is. Um, it, it, the book does a pretty thorough job of tracing the evolution of Fox News from its inception back in, in the 1990s to its position today, as I'd say, you know, it's definitely the most watched and probably the most powerful cable news network. Totally. Uh, and I'm wondering what you think are the biggest changes in how the network operates in the yeah. course of that time. Yeah. Look, I wanted to write hoax because I think Fox News is the most important media company in America. And that's because of its power with its audience and its influence over President Trump. I think when we're talking about power, it can be measured different ways. And uh, I would make the case, uh, whether, you, whether or not I work at CNN, that CNN is the most powerful news operation uh, because it is much bigger as a news operation, extends all around the world. You know, for example, Fox doesn't have any bureau in China. How can you be a big global news operation and not have a bureau in China? CNN, of course, was in China, is in China, was in Wuhan when the, when the pandemic began. So in terms of power, you can measure power different ways. But Fox is the most important because of its monopoly position on the right and its incredible and disturbing influence with Donald Trump. It's so different than what it was even five years ago when Trump was a candidate. Uh, the channel has become Trumpier and Trumpier and Trumpier over time, as, as you all have documented. And I wanted to put it all into a book for the first time. And do you think that that sort of shift has, is that the result of an attention to, you know, ratings, the bottom line? I mean, you notice it with, with certain uh, news anchors that have left the network. I'm thinking of Shep Smith. Um, and a few others who have departed uh, over, I guess, disagreements with the editorial content coming out of Fox News. Um, 
is that something that has been exacerbated recently? Could you see it coming from a mile away? You know, when, when President Donald Trump, all the way back in, in uh, the early 2010s, when he was being on, he was being interviewed on Fox and Friends right. weekly, you know, how has that evolution happened? Yeah, maybe we all should have taken those Fox and Friends calls more seriously. Uh, I know that people <laughs> give a lot of credit or blame to The Apprentice for uh, positioning the, Trump as a businessman, but Fox and Friends was more important because it positioned him as a political figure. It taught him what Fox cared about. And through the questions he was asked every week, he learned about the Fox audience. He knew what to say at his rallies. Um, you know, but look, during the campaign, it was different. It was complicated. Rupert Murdoch was quite critical of Trump. Ailes was skeptical for a while. Roger Ailes was skeptical for a while. Uh, the commentators like Greg Gutfeld, who are now very Trumpy, uh, were quite uh, uh, skeptical of Trump. Um, you know, it's not as if Trump took over one day all of a sudden. This was much more of a gradual process, a gradual takeover. I write in the book that anchors and commentators felt more and more pressure to please the Fox base, which meant uh, going easy on Trump and going really, really hard on his detractors. Um, a lot of this has to do with what the audience wanted. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned Rupert Murdoch there. How much in your reporting do you see him as still being involved in Fox News? He's certainly involved with the president and he's certainly um, uh, uh, watching the network, um, paying attention to what's on Fox. But I do not have the sense that he is nearly as involved as he was in the immediate aftermath of the Yale scandal in 2016 when uh, Rupert became the, the head of the network temporarily and was running the meetings. Um, you know, look, I would love for Rupert to talk about this. I would love for him to tell us himself rather than me have to rely on secondhand, uh, have to rely on sources who are anonymous uh, to describe his relationship with the network. But I, you know, I think he's the kind of owner who is excited to be there on election night, uh, who's excited to sit in on meetings about big events, but is not someone who is uh, reading scripts before airtime. Does that, does that sound right to you? I mean, look, that's, that's the impression I have from sources, but you have lots of sources too. Yeah, I mean, in my reporting that I've done about Fox News, uh, particularly, uh, as you said, in the aftermath uh, of the Ailes scandal, when, when Ailes left the network, Rupert Murdoch was extremely hands-on. And then from what I heard, the, you know, after he, he, had a, he suffered a back injury, uh, right. falling on a boat, mm -hmm. and really stepped back from the network. And I don't get the sense that his sort of, that either Ailes or his uh, control over the network has been replaced by Lachlan Murdoch, who is now in charge of Fox Corporation. Exactly right. I, I you know, describe how Rupert's the one that picked Tucker Carlson for that key primetime spot, but Lachlan is the one that is in touch with Tucker now, uh, and they mm -hmm. have a, a bit of an alliance of sorts, maybe more than a bit of an alliance. Um, I describe Lachlan at one point in the book as indifferent to the programming on Fox, not a guy who's obsessively watching Fox, maybe not like me or you, uh, which, which might be fine, except that he's responsible for the content on the most, um, most watched cable news channel in America in the midst of a global pandemic and multiple other crises. So maybe indifference is not the right approach today in 2020. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how you see the future of the network playing out. You know, Lachlan Murdoch's in, in charge of Fox Corp. James Murdoch, is, uh, who's a little bit more skeptical uh, of the, I guess, editorial direction of Fox News, is essentially out of the, the family business. He resigned from Fox Corp. Um, he's, you know, fucked off somewhere to play with investments, uh, from what I can tell. Do, do you see him making a return? Or is this really Lachlan's <laughs> show now? This is a, a cliffhanger 
in hoax. And uh, and I say in the book, um, what I'm about to describe might just be a liberal fantasy, uh, or it might be a very real um, threat to Fox News. Uh, I don't I don't think we can say for sure. But but the 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 scenario here is that because James is on the outside, everything he does seems to be. Uh, in preparation for a possible shareholder fight in the future. This would be in the event of Rupert's death, when there will be four votes for the family trust, four Murdoch votes, one for each adult child, uh, for, for each adult. Uh, and, and, and that, of course, that would be James. Um, it would be Lachlan. It would be Rupert. It would be Prudence. The, the, the theory out there goes like this. It says James, Elizabeth, and Prudence are, are disturbed by what's on, on the air at Fox News. James especially is disgusted by a lot of the content. They would have three votes and Lachlan would have one vote. In that scenario, it's, it's, not like, um, it's not like James is going to become CEO of Fox News. It's not like he's going to walk through the newsroom and say, all right, Tucker Carlson, get out of that studio. No, it would be much more subtle and, and, and nuanced and, and, and slow motion than that. But it is conceivable uh, that control could transfer within the family. And I, I, I you know, it, is that five years from now? Is that 15 years from now? None of us know. None of us could ever know. <clears throat> but it's enough of a possibility that it is talked about inside the company. And I know that at least, you know, that some of the on-air personalities at Fox News that I've spoken to uh, would not be particularly keen to have the network run by James Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I, yeah, that's absolutely right. Of course, go back to 2016 mm-hmm. when James and Lachlan essentially are united in their view that Ailes has to go. Um, but then they disagreed about everything else. Uh, and, and one story that's been reported previously is, of course, that, that James wanted to bring in David Rhodes, a former Fox executive, former president of CBS News. You know, James viewed hiring someone like Rhodes as a way to make the news division stronger, back to the middle. And uh, that's the opposite of what's happened at Fox. You know, rather than make it the Shep Smith network, it's become very clearly the Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson network. Um, and that's to be clear, that's what viewers want. That is a that is a that is a profitable business choice, right? Yeah. Uh, and uh, <laughs> the the battles between Tucker and Shep are were were stunning. And I wrote about those in, in hoax because I think they were the final straw for Shep leaving. But there were a hundred other reasons why Shep left. And by the way, he's never even talked about it publicly. I hope someday he talks about all the reasons why he left Fox News. Yeah, I mean, I think your your reporting on that rift between Tucker and Shep. I mean, uh, if I recall correctly, Tucker had uh, Do- Joe DeGeneva on his show, who criticized Shep Smith publicly, right? And right. that prompted a back and forth between Shep and Tucker on their respective shows, and eventually Shep Smith's departure. Yeah, it was uh, it was very ugly afterwards. on the air, but Shep had already called his agent and said, "I I need out. I I can't." Mm-hmm. I can't stay anymore. You know, go, go back to March, for example, and one of those times when the president of the United States attacked Shep on Twitter and Fox didn't do anything. Um, I, I, is, you know, yeah. is that something that you think during the Ailes era would have been, you know, Roger Ailes is, is, everyone remembers him as having sort of an iron grip over the network. Would he, and, and he was extremely protective of the network as well. Would he have, criticized Trump for calling out Shep Smith on Twitter? Or is that something that he would have just been hands off about recognizing that, you know, the network has a sort of more symbiotic relationship with the White House? Right. I, I am the first to admit that we will never know the answer mm-hmm. to this question, but it is one of the, the, the biggest questions of the Trump years. <clears throat> what would Roger have done? You know, what would Ailes have done? Here's what I know. I know that in 2015, 2016, when Ailes was in charge, 
Um, he was issuing statements that were, in retrospect, really impressive. I mean, this is what he said in March of, of 2016. Donald Trump's vitriolic attacks against Megyn Kelly and his extreme sick obsession with her is beneath the dignity of a presidential candidate. Um, that is shocking to hear. Where that. is that Fox? Like, where is, by the way, people at Fox miss that Fox. Like, people mm-hmm. at the company miss that version of Fox. Um, now, the argument, think- of course, is Go he's ahead. the president now. And you don't talk that way about a president or to a president. There's a certain level of respect that is owed. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, uh, we could debate that. But when he's attacking your talent, when he's hurting your your people, when he's causing them to receive death threats and and hate mail and and, and well, I, I I think it's I think it's clear that other networks and other news outlets have responded differently. Sure, and I do think that there's a sense in Fox. You know, whenever Trump tweets that he is leaving Fox News and going to OANN or, or <laughs> any of these things, I, I think there's a, there's a. I assume that it, that the, that's met with eye rolls at Fox because <laughs> you and I know Trump's not going anywhere. Um, you know, Trump will will say something like that. I'm never watching Fox News again, and then you'll see him on Fox and Friends the next morning for an hour long interview. Exactly, um, and we need to cover it that way. We have to be <laughs> careful not to to react. Um, we have, to, we have to be careful not to take too seriously his attempts to work the refs because yeah. that's all it is. He's working the refs. He doesn't want news on the channel. He only wants propaganda. That's why he attacks Chris Wallace and Arthel Neville and, um, you know, Shep last year and Leland Vitter. There's some other names in the book of these other anchors he's attacked. Um, An odd obsession with Sunday afternoon on yeah. Fox News. <laughs> which, which is funny because I also love Sunday afternoon television because I'm, yeah. I'm finished with my show you, and, yeah, you, and I'm flipping around. Up. And, and so I actually watch a lot of Fox on Sundays, uh, um, you know, after my program is, is off the air. And, you know, imagine what it's like when you're one of those anchors and you're getting hate mail from your own viewers. Mm-hmm. I understand as a CNN anchor, I'm going to get hate mail from Fox viewers. And I, I try yeah. to reply and show them I'm a real person and not, not some sort of um, caricature that, that I made out to be on Fox. But it's different when you get hate mail from your own viewers because you are covering the news. Mm-hmm. it's not like these anchors are going on the air and delivering scathing monologues about the serial liar in chief. They're just, they're just as, as carefully as possible trying to cover the news while feeling suffocated and restricted from doing so. And for mm-hmm. that, they get attacked by their viewers. That's why Aiden, I think, I think a big part of the story is about radicalization of viewers. I hate to say it, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Now I want to ask a little bit about uh, the Trump side of things, like what's happening in the white house. You, you write that Trump granted himself more executive time and watched more TV as the years went by. Could you take me through Trump's media diet or media schedule? I mean, is he really waking up at 6 a.m. in the morning and, and housing multiple hours of Fox News? Well, this like, what morning do you know about was, what he's uh, writing and reading throughout the day? Yeah, we're taping this on, on Wednesday, and, and he woke up at 4, 6. Uh, he started retweeting uh, before 5 in the morning, including uh, my segment on C-SPAN, which I appreciated. You That's know, a good it's look. It's interesting how he consumes certain information, right? He's not Mm going to watch C-SPAN live, but he is going to read the Blaze's regurgitation of the segment on C-SPAN. When it's put on his desk, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or his Twitter feed, you know, the virtual desk. Um, I remember in the early years of the the Trump era, uh, reliable sources, guests telling me they were getting phone calls from the president after their segments on my program. So, you know, it's it's always been clear that he watches a lot, including CNN and, and other channels. The difference with Fox is he's more reliant on it. You know, he 
it is a safe space. I know that's a cliche, but it is a safe space. Uh, and he watches largely on the DVR so he can fast forward through commercials, which, you know, that's is the most efficient way to do it. You got to give him credit for efficiency on that. And he has one of those really powerful DVRs, that DirecTV Genie HD DVR, so he can start watching upstairs, go downstairs, keep going where he left off. You know, those sorts of um, technological advantages help too. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think what's really fascinating uh, and that you get into in the book is the extent to which you can trace uh, either rhetoric from from Trump uh, to policy positions back to segments that he's seen on cable news, most most specifically Fox. Hundreds and hundreds of times, so many that I don't think we'll ever have a record of each and every single one of them. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. There's certain cases that... Uh, sure appear to be a Fox's influence, but you, you can't know for sure. And then there's others that are so obvious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you dedicate some of the book to examining the feedback loop between the White House and Fox News on the coronavirus pandemic, which I think yeah. is, is an enormously influential factor in how the United States responded to the virus, uh, is, is looking at what President Donald Trump was consuming at the time in terms of, of information. Uh, and so much of it came from Fox. Yeah. But looking not just at Fox, but at the media landscape more broadly, I'm wondering what you think the media did right and did wrong in how they covered the pandemic. And I, this is an ongoing question. I shouldn't use the past tense to describe that. Well, well it's absolutely true that there's a lot of responsibility to go around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, I, and I tried to, to write that and make that really clear early on in hoax. Um, mayors and governors and other media outlets and corporations all shared responsibility and a lot of people were late to the enormity of the crisis. I just think the focus on Fox and Trump is fair because their platforms are the biggest. Trump's platform, of course, is the biggest of all, and Fox's is the biggest on cable, um, with an audience that skews especially old and especially skeptical of, of um, institutions and, uh, and scientific rigor. So because of those reasons, Fox had more of a responsibility uh, than, than others. But, I, you know, I do think, um, gosh, it's hard to take, take you back to February, isn't it? It's hard to think back mm. to February and what we were all thinking back then. Yeah, and I mean, I and think- What we the, could have done differently. But the, I yeah. look at late February, I look at late mm-hmm. February as a turning point where there were two or three weeks of this country um, dithered. Uh, so, not everybody, but a lot of people where the virus was silently spreading and we both basically didn't know it because we didn't have testing early, you know, late February, early March, a lot of the, the television news conversation was about politics. We were covering this as a political drama, mm-hmm. Trump versus the Democrats in response to the coronavirus. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is when Mick Mulvaney got up at CPAC and said, you know, they think it's going to take down the president. We were co- it was being covered as politics, not a health emergency. And again, not everybody did that, right? I'm proud that CNN called this a pandemic before the federal government called it a pandemic, um, thanks to Sanjay Gupta and the medical team. But there was a lot of political coverage back then. There was a and lot. To be fair to, to one host in prime time at Fox News, Tucker Carlson uh, got credited for taking it seriously back in March. Yes, yeah. You Isn't know, that he, fascinating? He, yeah. he very famously traveled to Mar-a-Lago uh, to tell President Trump that he thought he should take it seriously. Um, and I, I will say, you know, his coverage has shifted somewhat since then. Um, he, you know, I, I went back and listened to some of his interviews in, in March where he was talking about how 
we can't even begin to comprehend the scale of the pandemic without widespread testing. Right. And, you know, th- that tone seems to have shifted a little bit. Now, a lot of his coverage is focused on, you know, railing against the lockdowns, criticizing Dr. Anthony Fauci. Um, it, it, how much credit do you give him for, for taking it seriously as far back as January? I'm not a student. I'm, I'm, I'm not a teacher and I'm not going to give out letter grades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, it, but in the book, I do acknowledge and describe that trip to Mar-a-Lago and his coverage in January and February because he was an exception to the rule um, on Fox's airwaves. And, you know, and there were doctors on Fox that were also warning about this early on. It's just that I think their voices were not as loud and as consistent as the political stars and the pro-Trump propagandists who were trying to do defense for Trump. But as with all things in the Trump years, when they tried to help him, they hurt him. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the biggest themes of hoax. When they try to do Trump a service, they do him a disservice. When they try to downplay the risk of the pandemic, they're hurting the president by trying to help him. And, you know, I think I agree. I mean, I think a lot of that contributed to why President Trump thought it was a good idea to hold a rally in, in Tulsa when the right, pandemic was, right. was raging. You know, yeah, you, I mean, my, you don't my do that. If, indicates that he was, he was yeah. lulled into complacency um, mm-hmm. in part by Fox's downplaying of the disease. And I, and I also think what happened is when you're addicted to this television network and you're, and you're watching these narratives form every day, like waves crashing on the shore, um, your, your head you kind of spins. Like you, you have a different, a different ideas every day, different thoughts every day. And this is, this is certainly true of the president who contradicts himself from day to day. We on March 22nd were, as a country, just beginning to shut down. Um, New York was further along than other parts. Washington State, of course, was furthest along. Um, but the, the country was still just beginning to shut down. And that's the night that Steve Hilton said on his show, the cure is worse than the disease. We're heading, we're hurtling toward that territory. March 22nd, when, you know, schools are just starting to close. And Trump tweets out exactly what Hilton said. You know, we cannot let the cure be worse than the, he changed one word, problem. And I just feel like as a country, we wasted time because of these narratives on Fox. Um, The death toll was still under 1,000. We knew we would need to be shut down for weeks or months to get this under control. And instead, as a national news cycle, we spend days talking about like the the president believes we should get back to church by Easter. Well, that would have been nice, but that would have been deadly. So, you know what I mean? I just feel like these television narratives that the president consumes, they hurt him and they waste the country's time. You know, that, that reminds me of, of the impeachment. Um, you know, I don't want to delve back into that, but I, the impeachment scandal it's a was a great was point. Oh, let, yeah, let's much... let, we'll let people read those chapters of the book. But yes, I mean, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, read hoax for more. But Fox's that, fingerprints same, are all the over the dynamic. Ukraine scheme. Yeah. And that got him, ended up getting him impeached. Um, and that was something that he saw, you know, for, for, you know, for years on Fox. I remember that, 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 that sort of the focus on Ukraine is sort of a, um, a distraction from the Russia investigation um, and the, the, the idea that Russia interfered in the 2016 election that had been simmering on, on Fox News and in conservative media for years um, and ended up getting the president impeached by the House. Right. I want to uh, ask about your position in writing this book. Hoax is, is a quite scathing indictment of Fox News as a journalistic operation. 
you describe the network as state-supported TV and almost like as, a, as an addictive substance that's devoted to Trump out of a consideration for basically ratings and profitability. One criticism I've heard of you writing this book goes like this. Right. You're a CNN host. Yeah. You're a competitor of Fox News. Your show, Reliable Sources, directly competes with, with Howard Kurtz's show on Fox, uh, Media Buzz. And so some at Fox see this as a competitor essentially writing a piece to discredit a rival. Do you have a response to that? I've thought a lot about this, of course. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, my view on it is that I cover Fox every day already. I cover Fox for CNN, for our Reliable Sources newsletter. I covered Fox for years of the New York Times. So my approach is treat it the same way. Uh, treat it the same way I, I would if I were at the New York Times. Knowing that <laughs> a book, uh, e- even, if, even, if, even if someone were to try to do a takedown, which I don't think this is, um, that's not, not what a, what's not, a book is not going to accomplish that. Uh, the story of the Trump Fox years is not going to accomplish that. So I, you know, I get it. It's an easy critique. It's a lazy critique. Um, I think there's no merit to it. And I think readers can judge whether me working at CNN benefits or harms the book. The the reason I say that is I think being inside the television business helps me with my vantage point. It certainly helped me retain sources uh, for the book. And I, I, so I think the reason I invoke my role at CNN in the, in the narrative throughout hoax is that I want people to know, like, I am in this. I understand what this is like. I have these interactions with fig- figures at Fox. I'm in the same uh, circles in some ways, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that gives me a, a, a better vantage point for covering this story. Yeah. And, you know, your, uh, I heard you, you speak about this in an interview recently, that your coverage on reliable sources, and I think you can, you can hear this in the book, you know, you, you write about how you're not coming at this from the perspective of just, you know, a really, you know, buttoned up wire reporter. You're, you're actually giving <laughs> your opinion on this, these kind of things. Do well, you think well, that's become... the other thing. Yeah. Is that sure. I, I try to write this as a dad and as a, as mm-hmm. a, you know, as a citizen and not just as a, you know, an anchor who goes to work on Sundays and slathers on makeup and, and talks about the news. Do you, do you consider yourself a, an, a news anchor or more of an opinion host? The title is anchor. I, I don't think what we're doing on Sunday morning is opinion. I think what we're doing is trying to break through the noise. And sometimes you do that through monologues. Sometimes you do that through provocative questions or provocative bookings. And I think it's pretty clear that in the Trump years, uh, a lot of news coverage has, I think, I wouldn't say gotten more opinionated, but I would say gotten less neutral. Um, And I I think certainly at, at CNN, there seems to be more of a focus on calling out Trump when he lies or when he attacks someone or uses personal terms to attack someone. And, you know, you see that on, on a lot of shows. And do you think that that's something that will, you know, wash away when, when Trump leaves? Do you think that's something that is a necessary evolution for journalism when someone like Trump ascends to the presidency? Well, it's a reaction to asymmetric lying. If Joe Biden tells us it's raining when it's sunny, then we're going to call him out for it. And if we don't, then we should be called out. The, the shock of the Trump years is not that, he's, that the president's being fact-checked when he tells delusional stories. The shock of the Trump years is that Fox News doesn't 
correct him and call him out and hold him accountable. I think the shock of the Trump years is that news anchors at Fox who want to make sure the truth is heard loud and clear feel suffocated. Mm-hmm. As, as one person there said to me, Shep had power that none of us feel like we have. Um, that's, that's almost, it's not quite the direct quote, but that's, that's the idea that, you know, Shep had the power to fact check, but we don't feel like we do. That is, that is outrageous. Mm-hmm. So I, that's what I would say. I would turn it around and say, um, the, the response, the, the pressure should be on those who treat fiction like fact, yeah. not on those who emphasize fact. Now I want to talk. I haven't uh, said it that way before. Should I say that on TV? Yes. That might be a good down. line. Because <laughs> we are, kind of, look, it's so funny. It, it's not funny. It's sad, but it's three and a half years mm-hmm. in, we're still talking about these, these core concepts about journalism in the Trump years, but we yeah. have to, because they are, they are constant. They are still with us every day. Did you know last week the president said that Hurricane Laura was um, briefly a Category Five hurricane? Nobody I, even noticed that that falsehood. I, I missed that one. <laughs> there, there well, are there are things he says that nobody even bothers to check anymore because he says so many things that are untrue. And again, I think then the responsibility is on those who choose not to notice. Yeah, and I, I think it's it's sort of a trap that that media falls into but i don't see another way out when you know the often critics of the media talk about how you know 90 percent of coverage of trump is negative and but if you have a president that you know that one of the jobs of the media is to uphold truth and if you have a president that walks out in front of cameras every day and just makes stuff up at what point is the media supposed to say okay well we can't cover this anymore because we're simply being too negative well, this um, is this is where he hit us right in the right in the weakest spot of our media body. <laughs> I look yeah. back at 2017. I think about his use of the term fake news, and then one month later, enemy of the people. And I think he hit us in that one spot we'd never been hit before. That, um, and and I think the the we I'm talking about the collective you know media world. We're still kind of reeling from the blow. And different people react to it in different ways. And some say, ignore it. Some say, fight back. And a lot of others just say, keep reporting the heck out of the story. Yeah. Now, I just want to ask about what you think happens when Trump leaves office. Not necessarily for Fox News, because to be honest, I think, I think Fox News will be just fine. They were an opposition network during the Obama administration. Uh, and Fox has managed to remain so during the Trump administration. And I don't really see the programming changing much or the audience really going anywhere. But let's say Biden wins in November. What do you think happens to journalism under a Biden presidency? Do you think like the ratings and the traffic boon that you've had for the past couple of years, do you think that goes away? I think the consequences of the Trump years will be with us for a long time, whether he leaves office in 2021 or 2025. And I think the the wounds in this country, the, the, the divides in this country are still going to be right where they were. Biden can try to make America boring again, but it's not going to work right away, I suppose. Is yeah. And, and even if he succeeds, you know, that's, that's not for a media reporter or for an anchor to worry about. Um, meaning, you know, it's, it's, um, um, I don't think it's the responsibility of journalists at CNN or Fox or MSNBC or other places to worry or to wonder about whether um, the ratings will be 20% lower because Biden will be holding normal factual press conferences and not uh, wild rallies. 
Um, we, we should have blinders on uh, when, when it comes to that issue. But, but here's what I would say as someone who's like obsessed with television ratings and has been ever since I launched TV Newser, ratings rise, ratings fall. I view this like, um, I think CNN is kind of like a buoy in the middle of the ocean. And the water level is always pretty steady. There's always an audience for what we are doing. There's always a core audience that wants to know what's going on in the world. And then ratings, the, the water rises when there's a storm, it falls afterwards, you know, the, the water rises and falls. Um, that, that's what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. there, but there is, there's always an audience for what's going on in the world. And when something really bad or really great happens, then there's a bigger audience. Uh, and um, there's only so much you can do to change the water level of the ocean. You know what I mean? Yeah. In fact, there arguably is not that much you can do. And by the way, I don't know if my bosses would agree with that characterization. That's just my personal view <laughs> of how the ratings work as someone who's just looked at them every day for 16 years. Sure. Um, uh, so so that, that's, that's my impression. But, but look, I, I, don't, I don't think the, if, if, if we were to imagine in January of 2021 that Joe Biden is taking the oath of office, the scar, you know, the, this country is going to be right where it was in November or October. Don't you think? Or am I... Yeah, I mean, this, I are we all going to forget about Donald Trump the, the minute Biden's elected? I don't think at all. I think there's like a Trump's not going to let us forget. There seems to be, from my impression, a sort of liberal fantasy that as soon as Trump is out of office, all of the people that supported him and enabled him in positions of power will sort of feel ashamed and you know be be ostracized from polite society, which seems like complete nonsense to me. Oh goodness, no! I think it's, it's the, rigged. It's a sham. Yeah. It was stolen from me. He's going to say it on Fox or he's going to say it on his own network. Question is how much we're going to bother. We as a society are going to listen. And I know that Sean Hannity's fans are going to listen. How much Trumpism is the Republican Party now? Um, I find it hard to believe that the Republican Party is just going to revert back to being, you know, the party of Marco Rubio. And that because they certainly must see the, the sort of potency of Trumpism. And how much they try and mimic that and how much Trump plays a role in the future of the Republican Party, I think is going to have a really big impact on how media looks going forward. And all eyes, will going be on forward. The, all eyes will be on the very first guest on your podcast, <laughs> Tucker Carlson, an early, early candidate for 2024. He had a long-winded uh, response of a Biden presidency. when I asked him if he was going to run in 2024. Yes, uh, I heard that. that. I, I eventually coaxed a no out of him, but, uh, but okay. you never know. Okay. Uh, I wanted to ask one last question about- I want to ask you, tell. who's going to be your first MSNBC guest? You've had, you've had CNN and Fox. Hey, listen, I'm, I'm new to this whole booking thing. I'm working on it. You'll, I'll, I'll, I'll keep you in, t- in, in the loop. Uh, I'll, uh, I, I'm trying to even out my, my guests. Don't worry about that. Um, but I wanted to, to ask you about a passage in the book. You described going on a few dates with a Fox News intern back in 2005. Oh, you're going to embarrass me. I'm sure you're sick of hearing about this, but it is a really insane anecdote, so I do have to ask. Back in 2005, Roger Ailes ran the network. You went on a date with a Fox News intern. You later found out that you went on a few dates, I should say. You later found out that they weren't dates, but the intern was a spy seeking to extract information from you to relay back to Ailes. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, How I, were the I, dates? What did I, you eat? Where'd you go? I thought they were dates. You, you, you've uh, maybe, maybe you're much more savvy than I am, and you've mm-hmm. never been in that friend zone. Mm-hmm. Can't tell if I'm you're on a date or not. We've all, we've all been there, I think. I've, I've certainly been there mm-hmm. in, in my in my premarital years. Sure. 
thank goodness I, I convinced Jamie to uh, marry me. Congrats. Uh, b- before, before I met Jamie, uh, this was, this was way back in like, you know, 2005 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this Fox news PR intern, uh, friended me on Facebook, you know, we got to know each other. I was living in Maryland. I was in college. So it was a big deal for me to be up in the big city in New York city, you know, riding the subway with her, um, you know, those sorts of things that sound silly in retrospect, mm. but you know, the reason why it's serious is she was taking notes and feeding information back to her bosses. Um, at least on one occasion that I know about, she was hauled into Ailes's office the next morning because he wanted a full debrief on what Brian Stelter said at dinner. And, and of course, the reason they were doing this was they, they were looking for evidence of anti-Fox bias. They were looking for other material that could be used against me because my blog was quite influential about TV news. There was, um, this, was this was funny, there was once a, uh, a picture of me posted by a rival blog. What a great phrase, rival blog. Come on. <laughs> but it was a rival blog. They posted a picture of me with beer spilled down my pants from a college party and called me a TV boozer instead of TV newser, which I thought was really funny. And I wish I could find that picture. I bet I had a lot more <laughs> hair. And this is, you know, look, this is amateurish stuff. This is sophomoric compared to what else was doing later and mm. what they were doing against Gabriel Sherman. You know, I got a hold of that dossier about Gabe. You know, it's like 400 pages long, a bunch of crazy stuff. Um, but, you know, they were acting like Cobra Tops agents. They, they were reflecting Ailes's paranoia and trying to, um, trying to, to gain advantage any way they could. And, I, you know, to be clear, that was under the Brian Lewis era. It was a different era. It was a different... It, um, it does seem that, that, that those sort of tactics left with Ailes, right? Like, I, I, I haven't heard a story coming anywhere near close to what happened with Gabe Sherman uh, with, you know, you going on, on you know, dates with a Fox News. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I, I mean, I do describe in the book a, a recent example where, you know, there was a producer who was paranoid enough to think that I was tape recording him in my briefcase and he called <laughs> it into management and, you know, come on, give me a break. Um, like, yeah, I had, I had sources all over. I don't need to tape record anybody mm. at a party. But, uh, but, but that, that's a reflection of the paranoia that Ailes created and, and that still exists at the network. I do think it is somewhat different now, though. I do think the PR operation is different now. Um, and, uh, and what I know is when I ask for comment, uh, they respond, and I appreciate that. You know, as, as much as these cable news wars seem so vicious and as much as the stars on Fox engage in insults and name-calling and, and childish behavior, people like me and you are just trying to report. Like, I'm, I'm really just trying to report the news and get to, get to the truth of what's going on. And, uh, and I appreciate that, uh, that, that they still respond. And, um, and sometimes we have uh, spirited conversations about stories, but that makes journalism better. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for coverage of my conversation with Brian Stelter on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.